This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Cavalry Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, October 6, 2022, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. And so up in a few, I will be speaking with a gentleman named John Levine. He is a culture and politics writer for the New York Post. What do we talk about? A lot of stuff in the news right now. The big one, or at least the one that I am most interested in, the Elon Musk purchase of Twitter is back on out of nowhere, or maybe not out of nowhere, kind of within a few days after a big treasure trove of discovery emails drop, um, kind of showing the conversations that Elon had with other uh, wealthy individuals who he got to help finance his purchase of Twitter. A couple days after that drops, he decides to reverse course, drop his lawsuit, or actually Twitter was suing him, but essentially drop his resistance or objection to going forward with the sale of Twitter. Elon will be purchasing Twitter. I think that this, and I don't want to get my hopes up, but I guess I'm risking it because I think this will be a transform, uh, transformative moment in American society. I still don't think people quite understand how, knowing that there are the thoughts police operating mostly within the middle management over at Twitter deciding who and who cannot say various things and which uh, essentially which signals and which voices get amplified I think that people don't understand just how significant this is and if Elon is sincere and I don't see any reason for him to believe that he's not sincere in essentially really just taking Twitter back to what it was and let's call it 2013 right before Trump before the notion of you know words equal violence before all the trolls um, if he essentially just takes Twitter back to that phase from 2010 to about 2015, where, you know, Twitter operated within normal customary online platform guidelines of just trying to prevent uh, you know, significant harassment, calls to violence, things of that nature, and takes its uh, thumb off the political scale or the cultural scale. That is a transformative moment for American society. So I'm hopeful. I, I will admit I was kind of questioning. I was like, oh, man, did Elon was just an, just an impulsive thing? And, you know, he never intended to go through with it in the first place. And the second that the stock market took a turn, uh, he was going to weasel out of it one way or the other. I was definitely concerned. So uh, um, definitely a bright spot that he that it, this platform is going to be in the hands of Elon Musk. And I got to imagine it is not going to be a good day for any number of more, you know, kind of uh, liberal leaning and more pro censorship middle management employees at Twitter, many of whom said some not so nice things about Elon on the company Slack channel in response to his first uh, company town hall. So can't imagine it's going to be can't imagine they're going to be with the company that much longer. But if we are talking about impact on culture, um, it's something that I wanted to speak with uh, with John more about we only got to touch on it a bit we talked about uh, you know the elon situation and a variety of political issues all that i think are super interesting and, and more so why you know uh, uh, a culture and society are or are not reacting certain ways to those political developments um but one we want to take you to the movies here for us for a moment an interesting issue popped up around the film industry this week in regards to a movie called bros by uh, from a star co-writer named billy eichner and bros was the first or at least the most visible uh romantic comedy about a male-on-male relationship. So uh, a gay, a male homosexual relationship was the subject matter for a uh, for romantic comedy. Um, big studio picture, $40 million marketing campaign, which was pretty much the poster art, which was two, two, you know, two guys uh, cradling each other's asses. Okay, that was the marketing campaign, right? Apparently, they thought that was worth $40 million, right? I, I didn't see any trailers for this movie, but you go all around town, um, particularly in Los Angeles, over the last eight to ten weeks, and you 
can see this poster everywhere. They were expecting that this kind of cheeky, um, you know, this cheeky, naughty uh, uh, poster insinuation of these two men. And ooh, this is a bro on bro love story that that was going to show how interesting and groundbreaking a piece of culture and content this is. Well, it did not turn out that way as uh, bros was a monumental failure, uh, only made four million dollars at the box office this week. It was expected even worst case scenario to make eight to ten. Um, it was a complete bomb. Right. And, you know, not the first bomb in the history of the movie movie industry. But uh, these days, in response to the poor performance of certain movies that are supposed to be cultural touchstones for identity groups, then the whole cultural conversation starts up about whether or not this was discriminatory, oppressive and whether uh, uh, whether or not this was just a normal reaction to art or if this says something more grand about American society. And ooh, uh, Billy Eichner is making no bones about what he thinks was the cause for the failure of his movie. He went straight. He did not pull any punches. He essentially tells us we are all a bunch of Neanderthal, barbarian, homophobic straight people who did not come out for his movie because American society is still so hateful and oppressive towards homosexual people. Fascinating stuff. So here was Billy's. Billy. Well, first off, if you go, go Google, uh, go Google Billy Eichner right now. All of the Google News headlines, all about Billy Eichner slams Twitter trolls for bros criticism. It was the bros bomb, the fault of straight people and homophobia. Uh, Billy Eichner reacts to disappointing box office, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the entire conversation, you know, pretty much the main, main topic of conversation around American culture and art this week was whether or not this movie bombing was uh, the result of homophobia or not, right? And what a tired and what a boring conversation to have. And also just a juvenile look at how this guy Billy Eichner and who's you're trying to portray yourself as someone who people want to you know support and be fans of and like you want to be a likable or at least interesting person this was his response on Twitter that's just the world we live in unfortunately even with glowing reviews and you know another question whether or not these glowing reviews were uh, actually indicative of the quality of the movie or whether or not you know critics as we've seen so many times with this massive gap between how critics react and audiences react the critics gave it a good review because they thought they were supposed to give it a good review um, so he says, even with glowing reviews, especially in certain parts of the country, straight people just didn't show up for bros. And that's disappointing, but it is what it is. This is a fascinating follow up tweet. Everyone who isn't a homophobic weirdo should should go see bros tonight. You hear that? If you don't see bros, if you don't like the movie bros, you're a homophobic weirdo, right? It seems like being preachy and scold and just scolding everybody for not letting us say, hey, you know, uh, homosexual, you know, male on male sex and romantic relationships. I, it used to be the argument. Why do you care what I do uh, in my own bedroom? That doesn't seem to be the argument anymore. The argument seems to be now you must celebrate this, that if you don't want to go spend $10, $12 a ticket your night and a couple hours enjoying the story about two homosexual men that you are now homophobic. We've gone way beyond what I'm doing. I'm, I'm a consenting adult and what I do has no impact on you too. If you do not celebrate this and want to embrace it and make your consumer choices in its embrace, you are homophobic. This is fascinating stuff. And the idea that in acting and conducting himself this way that Billy Eichner isn't turning people off. It's like, don't, don't you want to do things to make more people go see your movie but no in in the era of intersectionality where everything is filtered through an identity group everything has to be hostile people like billy eichner have to make every issue a one of hostility between groups and everyone's opinion is or everyone's consumer opinion or whether or not they enjoy certain movies or want to see them is a reflection on how they feel about these different demographic groups right what the hell type of world is this is this a pleasant way to operate society do we really think that this is pushing the ball forward i mean uh, or i i would want to ask billy eichner does he think he's really helping the cause because i i posted about this on instagram and i got a bunch of responses from a bunch of uh, followers of mine who are gay are like, God damn it, dude, this guy is not helping. It's like, what is he doing? He's like, I don't want to force anyone to see a movie out of some sort of obligation. It's like, if nobody's bothering me and I'm not bothering them, I, I don't want them up in my personal life, right? There have been movies showcasing gay relationships previously the birdcage in freaking 1997 made that was a big hit right it kind of does suggest that not every consumer or art or, or audience choice is a reflection of a value system and people just want to see something that features people that they like that they want to watch and that is an engaging or funny story but that's just beyond what people can contemplate or at least the loudest voices in media these days 
Uh, Oliver Traldi uh, is a person I follow on Twitter, interesting journalist. And in response to one of the claims from Eichner, I and mean, he just said, this stuff confuses me so much. Like, do many people just throw away money and time on watching movies in theaters as gestures of support? Don't you think people just buy tickets to movies they expect to enjoy? And that is such a great explanation of that dichotomy is that traditionally, for God knows how long, you're able to just like things or not like things or just spend your time and your hard earned money how you wish without everything being a reflection of your own morality or ethics and being judged by everyone for these decisions. But not anymore. Not anymore. These days, the way you spend your money, whether it's in support or in supporter of a cause or lack of a support for a cause, mostly based around identity groups. We have decided to reduce everybody to their demographics, to their identity, straight, gay, black, white, transgender, God knows what. And all of it, as that gets injected into culture and art, all of your decisions or audience decisions are essentially your statement on those groups one way or another. And I, this is just not this is no way to live yet. It is the way that we are living, unfortunately. Possibly we'll see if it is market corrective action, right? The, the, the notion that this would turn people off, thus these companies that are in the business of making money would react accordingly and stop making movies like this or featuring people people who do conduct themselves like this, we're going to test that one out. I don't know. We'll see. Does this spell the doom for any uh, uh, gay, you know, homosexual based romantic comedy ever? Or does it just spell the doom for ones by people like Billy Eichner, who are so insistent in rubbing everybody's face in it? Only time will tell. Just to insert one more thing here. You know, I re revisited uh, a film uh, that was at the time controversial from the 90s uh, uh, a few days ago. Cruel Intentions. This is the late 90s during that teen movie craze. And it, just go watch those movies and, and see the kind of libertine attitudes with which it operates and how much more fun those movies are. How much more enjoyable, engaging. Even you're not sitting there while you know, Ryan Felipe is conducting himself um, you know, uh, in an unsavory manner and womanizing. You're like, oh my God, fantastic. That's so great. I reflect this set of values. Or, or if Sarah Michelle Gellar's like doing blow out of the, you know, uh, the cross on her neck and manipulating people and all this stuff, like your reaction to this movie is not a commentary on who you are or what your values are. You just go and see and understand that watching some people being scandalous sometimes is fun. And that's just if you, you know, look at those movies now and culture that that short period in the 90s where things had become somewhat more liberal. You had a gay character in Cruel Intentions, uh, um, you know, people were more you know, accepting of and, you know, are more okay with scandalous portrayals of sex and things like that, that short moment in, you know, let's say the mid nineties to the early two thousands where things had liberalized and, you know, loosened up a little bit, but we didn't get into this whole freaking morass of identity issues and, and moral scolding and here and there. And, you know, it's unfortunate. I don't know if we ever return uh, uh, to that attitude and that atmosphere, but it would sure be great if we did. Okay. So enough about that. Got John Levine coming up. Super smart guy, just educated and insightful on a number of topics across the political and cultural spectrum and where those two collide. Uh, so stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Matt Belinsky. This is The Prevailing Narrative. And oddly enough, yesterday I got a query. Uh, someone asking, hey, Matt, who do you think would be your New York counterpart? Ostensibly somebody who uh, loves breaking down current events, uh, local politics, culture, and the intersection of all those, but also has kind of a unique, you know, goes deep about the, the you know, scenarios in, in local politics, in my case, Los Angeles, but in, in someone else's case would be New York and understanding what the, uh, the you know, the understanding the morass of, of the civic government in their territory. And it just so happens that I think I'm interviewing that person today. His name is John Levine, and he is a writer for the New York Post, primarily on culture and politics and of course um where those two collide so john thanks so much for being here today thank you for the for the introduction it's very i'm very happy to be here fantastic uh well to jump right into it and on an issue that may or may not depending on where you're standing um radically transform the news environment information environment and kind of how american society works uh elon musk's uh, elon musk and his purchase of twitter which seemed to be on hold for a few months there it seemed a lot of there was good reason to believe that elon uh had just been teasing everybody essentially uh, uh leading people to believe that he was going to purchase twitter return it to its original uh 
uh, modus operandi, which was uh, you know the town, the the kind of town square where everyone had a voice, um, and that was going to be generally politically neutral. And then gets into all this nonsense about oh, uh, just so happens that I, I I am pulling back on the price as the stock market dips because it's because of the bots. Yet in no change in the purchase price or the material commercial deal points, uh, Elon announces yesterday that he wants to move forward with the Twitter purchase. Um, so John would love your thoughts, and I guess we're all speculating at this point, but what do you think you know, catalyzed that reversal? And do you have any, any thoughts on why he's going through with this uh, and when he's going through with it? Well, I think that he, he thought he was going to lose is the short answer. I think he signed an agreement to purchase Twitter. And then when he tried to back out, you know, contracts have consequences and agreements are, are have consequences. And it was a very, frankly, it was a good deal um, with that, the share price he was buying at for $44 billion, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and the Twitter board rightly said, no, you've, you've made an agreement. We, we want this. And, you know, if you talk to a lot of people, they'll say he probably was overpaying for mm-hmm. Twitter. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why he, he wanted to get out of it after the fact. Um, also coinciding with the broader dip in the stock market around that time. But uh, he was going to lose. He was going to lose. I think his lawyers told him that he was ultimately going to be forced to buy this thing anyway. And, you know, meanwhile, if you go through a protracted trial, there's going to be discovery. There's just going to be a lot of stuff coming out. And if you're going to lose anyway, you know, why go through that? And so I think you're seeing a peace offering from him. I don't, you know, I, I think... It was. I think there's a part of it that was probably very impulsive to buy it. I think he he was listening to a lot of people. I think it's he viewed it kind of as a branding thing. I think he viewed it as a very as a, as a thing he wanted to own on principle because he is a sort of free speech sort of warrior type person, and he he's in that environment of people that care about that. Um, but I don't know that he totally thought through everything mm-hmm. uh, before he jumped the gun. Yeah, I guess in thinking about him, the the catalyst being him realizing that he was going to lose and he was going to have to buy it. Anyways, I guess I just wonder, what did he realize today or yesterday that he didn't realize two, three months ago um, that, right. you know, or was this like uh, when uh, a football team lines up, tries to get, you know, uh, an aggressive snap, tries to draw the other team off sides. And when they don't realize they're not going to draw the other team off sides, go, sides goes ahead and punts or kicks the field goal anyways. It, it all is rather sloppy. You, 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 I, I'm surprised it got to this point. Yeah. I, I don't know why his attorneys didn't, you know, sort of sit him down a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think a lot of the myth of the of the fantastic Elon has been has been uh, hurt. I don't want to say shattered, but it's been diminished a little bit because it's been a, it's been a weird process. Nobody believed this, the, the, the line about the bots. Oh, well, I don't want to buy it now because they lied about the number of bots on the platform. That's a, that, I mean, that's a standard piece of due diligence that he sure. should have done independently. And, and, and that I, he I find waved. hard to believe he didn't do that. Yeah, and that he waved. But it did seem like that at the very least it was a pressure point that he could use that with this, the incredibly strange timing of the dip and uh, the retraction in the economy in you know uh, public stock market valuations um, and that, okay, be- because of that s- strange quirk, he felt the need to push any leverage point he could to try to renegotiate the purchase price. Turns out that he can't do it. So, okay, here we are now. And in, in terms of uh, you know whether or not this uh, elevates or pierces the, uh, the notions of of you know Elon as as a supernatural. Um, I, sure, it, it's a, it was sloppy on the business side, but okay, now he's going to own the most powerful communication right. platform in the world, and now this will be an interesting test of. I mean, we're, you know, in kind of in trying to read the tea leaves of why he was doing this in the first place and whether or not it seemed impulsive. While it may have seemed impulsive, it also did seem sincere. It does seem it the things that may annoy you or I or some other people, you know, who uh, are, are you know generally aligned with us on the issues and notions of free speech. And those things seem to bother Elon uh, as well. And it seems like he figured, okay, I have the power and the resources to do something about it, and I want to do something about it. So I guess. Uh, with that in mind, do you you know what what's your gauge on his sincerity and how much that's going to manifest in actual changes to the platform? Do you believe that he was in, in uh, his uh, the claim that he's doing this because he wants it to be a truly decentralized free speech platform, not represent all these liberal orthodoxies? Um, is he going to follow through on that? Do you think he's going to follow? I through? think he wants to. 
I think mm-hmm. his heart is genuinely in the right place here. And I think he, as the richest man in the world, wants to have an impact beyond just being rich. And he views there's a lot of Twitter is the public square. It's probably one of the most influential companies that doesn't build anything mm-hmm. that I can think of. Um, it, it, I mean, it was it was critically important in both the 2020 and 2016 elections, and it will it will likely be it potentially could be very, very decisive in the 2024 elections, um, especially if he follows through with promises to bring back Trump and to bring back a whole host of figures who've been canceled over the years. I think his heart in the right place. But, you know, it is it is true. The devil's in the details. Like, it's very easy for you and me to sit here and say, oh, yeah, free speech is great. Let's all have the free speech. And. I think there's a lot of big picture. It's great. Let me rewind. Big picture, it's great to say, yeah, let's have free speech, but the devil's in the details. And it's all it's all fun and games until it's like, oh, why don't you go kill yourself? Or I, you know, I think you should, or I don't, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of terrible things you can say that fall within the bounds of free speech. And, you know, it's not. It's it's the question is, do you allow that kind of content? And I know people who say, yes, let it be a free for all ride. But sure. But, uh, you know, counterpoint there is that it used to operate by a different rubric that was more traditional for let's call it up till about 2015, 2016. In 2012, sure, Twitter had some community guidelines. Um, They weren't well enforced, just like they're not well enforced now. But the notion that, you know, at least as Jack Dorsey, if you you listen to Jack Dorsey, what uh, what he says is we want to censor things that would be illegal off the platform. Right. So, you know, threatening to kill someone, um, conspiring or organizing a crime like those are things if you use another platform you, those, those things are crimes in and of itself well, so well, what if someone were to say you know get all their followers to start calling you the n-word or 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 saying some things about jewish people and you know there, there's there and it, it would technically be legal and i'm not saying you ban that content but it's a thorny question that they're going to have to work through and if they sure and is it, if that would fall under legally protected speech yeah, but I think that those those are thorny questions that were traditionally thorny questions, right? Then you have this other bucket that's clearly uh, an expression of the left wing, uh, the the left wing orthodoxies of the people who work at Twitter, right? That some of the stuff, let's call it from, the, I think the libs of TikTok account is almost the perfect avatar and battlegrounds for this. In that, literally, the libs of TikTok, I mean. 95% of what comes through that account is literally just reposting right. weird stuff that you see that is done on other on the platform and that you've got these liberal, you know, you hear all the reports internally at Twitter. Um, the the employees, because it seems that it is highlighting or subjecting these people um, to people who don't like them, that it's something that should not be allowed to be done, right? That's yeah, something no. that, you know, it, based on the 2012 or 2009, hey, Twitter's been around for a while, the 2012 standards of Twitter would not even be a question. But now, given the leftward turn of the platform, uh, now becomes something that, you know, the libs of TikTok has to send threatening letters. Um, a guy like James Lindsay gets deplatformed, and you got a bunch of other people who might... Uh, uh, who are concerned that they would get their uh, account suspended for saying some pr- stuff that was considered pretty reasonable uh, about gender identity and gender fluidity up until about 2017. The goalposts have shifted. I mean, that's yeah. the key thing here is it starts with, OK, let's not let's keep you know actual Nazis off the platform. Let's minimize the use of the N word on the platform. And you could argue that these are useful curtailing of free speech. But then, sure. you know, the problem with curtailing free speech anywhere is that it inevitably becomes a slippery slope. And we've seen it, as you talked about, where, okay, it starts with no Nazis on the platform. It starts with let's have not have the N-word. And then before you know it, it's like use the wrong pronouns, you're getting banned. Yeah. And, you know, you're using someone's dead name, their pre-transition name, you're getting banned. And a lot of these uh, decisions are taken in the name of public safety. And it's, well, it's harming people to do this. And we don't want to harm people. But at a certain point, you know, we have to go back to something my mother said to me growing up, and I think yours probably did too, which is sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And I think we should really be cognizant of that. And as we think about the why do we have free speech? It's not to protect people's right to say, I love puppies and kittens, right? Yeah. That doesn't need protecting. What needs protecting is the right of people to say hurtful things and to say offensive things and to say controversial things. And I think that is sort of 
a wisdom that you the left used to appreciate and they used to understand very, very much. And it was always the yeah. right that was trying to cancel people. And I remember burning the Dixie Chick CDs back in the Black <laughs> War period. And it's it's really flipped and it's surprising to see. And it's made mm -hmm. me kind of, you know, I'm in a weird place where I don't feel like I've changed, but the background behind me has changed a lot. Uh, John, I know the feeling, my friend. I was like, oh, okay, I, I I could identify who the suffocating scolds were for pretty much all of my childhood and early adulthood. It was pretty much taken as an article of faith. Those were the, the religious right and, you know, uh, people on, uh, if not in their lane, in the lane next to them, right? And the fact right. that it has all of a sudden become um, those of a more liberal milieu is just, it's, it's astonishing. And I, I don't think we've quite, um, people quite understand the implications and how much this has changed society. But um, I don't know. We'll see. You've got a bunch of people who are employees at Twitter who said very not, you know, in, in all their wisdom, decided to say very not nice things about the new boss on the company Slack channel during his uh, initial meeting with the uh, with the company. And we're going to have to see if they if their positions at Twitter survive this shift and uh, to the extent that they are replaced, if that then if the platform then is more of a reflection of a new set of values of let's call it less suffocating uh, uh, internal employees. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Um, so one issue that that went right to the heart of you know new decisions and new standards um, for content moderation on these platforms and ones that one that you've been covering quite a bit over the past couple of years uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story not just you know uh, uh, its place in the 2020 election um, how the social media platforms treated it and also what uh, what implications it has and what you know the the actual subjective analysis of Hunter Biden's activities and that it might actually imply that Joe Biden did some not some quite unsavory things that might, uh, you know, uh, impact his uh, fitful, you know, how fit uh, of a president he is. Um, so last night, Tony Bobolinsky, who apparently I believe was one of Hunter Biden's business associates, um, popped back up and said no uncertain terms that, yeah, you know, I was business partners with Hunter. I have good. I'm a very valid and qualified source that he was involved in some blatant corruption that involved his father. Um, you could have verified the laptop's contents with me since I was on a bunch of emails that, you know, were counter emails to the emails sent from the laptop. Um, and I was in touch with the FBI and the, the FBI said, you know, great. We'll get back to you on that. And um, the implication being that the FBI was not too interested in pursuing anything unsavory or illegal done by Hunter Biden that could be reflected by the materials on the laptop. Right. It's all it's all very, very deep. It's all very, very twisted. It's all very, very interconnected. John Paul Mac Isaac, the OG laptop repairman, gave the hard drive to the FBI in 2019. They've had it since then. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony Bobolinsky uh, was interviewed by the FBI before the election, and I believe in October of 20, and gave them reams of data, encrypted cell phones, banking records, things that to this day have never been made public because he's sitting on them and he gave it to the FBI. Nothing mm -hmm. was done. Um, there was an FBI agent named Timothy Tebow, not the football player. The eloquent um, French he, uh, spelling. Yes. Right, right, right. And this guy, a whistleblower came forward to say that this was like the point man in charge of managing Bobolinsky, and he played an integral role in, in mothballing any Hunter investigations mm -hmm. until after the election. Now, he's since resigned from the FBI, and there's uh, the House Republicans have already sent him a preservation notice to keep his cell phones and documents and emails intact, but who knows if it reached him in time. It's standard to delete stuff. And then you've mm -hmm. got the situation with the letter from the intelligence agencies. Um, 51 intelligence agency chiefs say it's clearly yeah. Russian disinformation. Now, those are people who held, in many cases, top-level jobs during Joe yeah. Biden's vice presidency. So you're going to tell me that they didn't know what Hunter was up to when, when, when dad was vice president? So yet they signed this letter, which they must have known was a lie. Clapper, Brennan, Panetta, all of them. So they need – they they – Republicans promised that they should be held to account as well. And whether or not they knew what was going on with Hunter uh, during uh, during Joe Biden during Joe Biden's tenure as vice president, they had no basis or no probable cause whatsoever to claim that this was Russian disinformation. Even if you don't are not aware of what was on the laptop, right? These are and I, I'm just I'm still 
baffled and I, I don't understand. I guess I do because it was tr it involved Trump, but I still don't understand how people are okay with this. 51 members, uh, like high level members of the FBI, CIA and American security uh, uh, intelligence agencies essentially either outright lied or recklessly claimed that the Hunter Biden laptop materials were Russian disinformation, which has been proven was at the time all available evidence suggested that was not the case. And it's been proven incontrovertibly, incontrovertibly wrong. And this caused in the face of the most, I guess we could call it the most heated presidential election of our lifetime, for any uh, every major social media company to essentially, you know, ban the New York Post from they ban the New York Post what from a couple weeks on, on Twitter oh, yeah. they lock totally the account. Facebook would Facebook suppressed the story. We were banned from the Post. It was full blown containment collusion between Democratic Party. Big tech and the intelligence agencies. And, and, and we've never had a clear answer as to how that was all organized. And it's all going to come out soon. And, and it, and all should the, come out. I, I, it must because I'm sitting here thinking, OK, that 20 to 30 percent of American society, that's pure resistance. Fair, fair enough. They're, they don't give a shit. They're going to consider that Donald Trump was such a threat. Any measure taken was sufficient. But that's not every non MAGA voter is not a member of the resistance. How do all those people in the middle not scream bloody murder about how does this not perk their ears up that, you know, that there was this level of collusion to shut up to to, you know, essentially uh, snuff out a story that was incredibly relevant right before the election. I don't get it. Right. And, you know, look, when Access Hollywood dropped, there was no effort to suppress that. And where, yeah. you know, that it, you know, it is what it is. There are, there are these kinds of things in October in a presidential election, October surprises. They mm -hmm. come out, you know, it, that sources have their timelines for when they choose to leak things. It's it's just it's unfathomable. And it, it, it subverted our whole democratic process because there have been there have been polls that mm -hmm. show critical numbers of people, potentially significant numbers of people. It would have changed their vote had they known about the story, but they were not. They were actively prevented from knowing about the story by a partisan press that didn't want them to see it and an activist uh, tech uh, class that didn't want them to see and, and went out of their way to stop them from seeing it. And apparently people are OK with this or at least not as, uh, you know, so up in arms that it's putting enough pressure on these agencies and these people to admit that they were wrong or take corrective action. You know, who's going to. Who's going to cause who's going to compel them to take corrective action? You know, obviously, the side that they went to bat for won. Yeah. So th that you're not seeing that if Republicans take back the House, they have promised a blizzard of oversight and investigations to get to the bottom of all of this. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think we also can't understate how much Trump changed everything. And a lot yeah. of people, a lot of people's values and a lot of the things that they said were core values went out the window because the, it became this view. Well, Trump is a unique threat to American democracy, and anything that is is necessary to to stop him is justified. Mm -hmm. It's and that's it. And so why we used to believe in free speech, but now that's too dangerous. That's out the window. And and I, I think you see you saw a lot of traditional liberal values kind of take a second a back seat to to stopping Trump at all costs. Yeah, and, 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 and it, these intelligence agencies spent three years yeah. shopping the Steele <laughs> dossier. And something about like a P tapes and a prostitute in Russia and Trump. And that was all baloney. That was all fabricated. That was actually fake stuff. And we spent three years on it. And intelligence agencies happily leaked it along and kept it going. And that was all nonsense. And here we have a legitimate story, a real thing. And they shut it down. And go. so that I guess that's where, you know, I, I find I'm just scratching my head, for instance, with any, any corruption that went on during the Nixon administration and Watergate. OK, the pressure was on Nixon to resign. Um, the you know, his successor was Jimmy Carter, who was someone the I guess the voters spoke in looking at what was done and uh, and rejected it. Right. But the voters now are the American public. And you're asking where the pressure would come from. I mean, and, you know, just public outcry in general. There doesn't seem to be a public outcry to hold any of these people to account for fabricating the story for the claims you know is a different it's it's a different version of um election denialism but it was another election denialism donald trump didn't win he won because of the the russians it was like all right might not have been january 6 but it was some fractional version and, and there doesn't i don't know is is just is, is the american public in such a malaise or is their brain scrambled so much from the the intensity of the last five six years that just that public outcry is never going to come it's hard because Look, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the American public a little bit on this because 
look how like in, it, inflation is eight and a half, nine percent. Gasoline is crazy expensive. It's hard. Like it's really hard right now in the United States. Mm-hmm. Harder than it's been in a long time. People have lives. People have children. People have like real lives. And it's a sure. very it's to care about Hunter Biden if you're an American is really a luxury issue. It means you don't have to worry about inflation or gasoline or buying groceries. And in the same way that to care about like Russian collusion was a very luxury issue that it grips a very ensconced and and privileged sector of society. But it's it's hard to get ordinary people who are struggling. You know, half of Americans don't even have like 500 bucks saved up for for a rainy day. And that's a that's terrible. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's very, very I'm very sympathetic to people who might not have the bandwidth to to be all over this issue. But it, that doesn't mean it's not important and it doesn't mean the media shouldn't focus on it. But I, I think that is some yeah, kind of explanation. I, I, you know, I guess in tying these two issues back together, I guess it's I, I, I do find, you know, at some point, I think they'll wake up to concerns and risks from these powerful institutions and platforms like a Twitter and understanding how much power they wield and, and knowing that they are you know, that that they uh, have been poisoned and are acting uh, unethically to the in this extent at some point. But that let's we're going to see if um, if Elon's participation cleans that up, if if it doesn't aim it towards perfection, at least it stops it from being as uh, as knowingly and, and willfully corrupt as it was in regards to the Hunter Biden story. His heart's in the right place. As I said, though, the devil's going to be in the details and, and actually sure. adjudicating things in a case-by-case basis what's it loud not allowed the next battle elon against the woke middle managers of twitter we will see how that one plays out admittedly my money's on elon but uh stranger things have happened um so uh, to a little more hard and fast politics because we have a pretty significant you know pretty important election coming up in november um and you've been covering the the more you know the higher visibility races there's two in particular that seem to keep on popping up that are a little more uh, media friendly or at least uh uh seem to have more drama around them one is the senate race in georgia the other one's the senate race in uh uh, in Pennsylvania, um, one of them, the Senate race in Georgia this week, uh, got a little heated as Herschel Walker, former NFL star. He's got a son named Christian who is as you know become a bit of an influencer, a political influencer in and of itself. Um, he's gay, you know. He's he's loud, and his videos are are very. Uh, his videos are let's let's call it they're they're spicy, and uh, he seemed to be supportive of his father and was campaigning for him. Certainly makes no uh, uh, secret about how much he hates the quote unquote libs um then out of nowhere in response to a story that herschel walker who now proclaims to be pro-life did pay for a former mistress's abortion in 2009 christian christian walker takes to twitter i know my mom and i would really appreciate it if my father herschel walker stopped lying and making a mockery of us you're not a family man when you left us to bang a bunch of women threatened to kill us and had us move over six times in six months running from uh, from your violence i don't care about someone who has a bad past and takes accountability but how dare you lie and act as though you're some moral christian upright man you have lived lived a life of destroying other people's lives how dare you that guy (laughs) yeah christian walker has no chill Uh, so i guess yeah Oh, so I guess my question is, yeah, yeah, what, how, how, to what extent do you think this is going to impact that race, which did seem to be closing up a bit? You want to know how it's going to impact the race? Nothing. Walker's really in same old, same old. You can take it to the bank. And I'm not saying that because I'm in the tank for Walker or anyone. I'm not, Uh you know, Walker is a proclamation candidate. Uh-huh. Walker's going to win. We are living in a post access Hollywood world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do not fall into the trap of, I remember Access Hollywood, where Trump's infamous, you know, grab by the pussy video drops. It was around the same time as the mm-hmm. as the abortion story and, and and Christian Walker's remarks. And everyone said, it's over. It's over. Everyone. People were telling him to drop out of the race. And I'm sure, sure some people told Herschel to drop out of the race. Fact of the matter is the lesson from Access Hollywood is that the American people are way more forgiving than the opinion and pundit class. Mm-hmm. And it, as long as you don't allow the consultants to get in your ear and tell you to start groveling or doing something stupid or, or dropping or out and your people apologize. And look, Herschel's not a good candidate. Mm-hmm. He, he's one of these people that Trump elevated because Trump is addicted to celebrities. Same yeah. We picked Oz and in Pennsylvania. And um, 
Walker is baggage. And, you know, look, if you hear Walker talk, we're we're not, you know, we're not we're not lining up to join Mensa here. It's, mm-hmm. you know, he's a, he's a long time. He's a football player. Football. A lot of football players of his age have mm-hmm. difficulties, you know. Later and didn't he, he he admitted to some mental health problems even before that was trendy. Right. right. You know, so, 10, 15 years ago, he was admitting to having multiple multiple personality disorders. The reason that he said, yeah, I, I, I'm crazy. That's why I was able to do 2000 sit ups a day. He's a little troubled, no question. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like for Republicans, it's not a question of Walker. It's a question of they need that seat if they're going to have any chance of getting a majority. So, mm-hmm. I mean, look, if, if if Republicans had nominated a baked potato, they'd have to rally around him because they sure. need someone there. But no, I think he wins. I think uh, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, is quite popular, and he's going yeah. to stomp all over Stacey Abrams. Mm-hmm. And he will probably drag Walker over the finish line. With so you COVID. think that's it? That there the gen that it, it, the the 2020 senatorial elections for George were a big a bit of an outlier because we were still under the shadow of Trump questioning election integrity and and killing motivation for the Republican voters. And George is going to kind of revert a little yeah, bit well, to the Warnock mean in this election. In. Warnock got in because it was 2020. Um, Trump is a historically unpopular president. Georgia Mm -hmm. went for Trump, as you remember, and um, the both of the Georgia Senate seats went into runoff territory. And I believe Warnock went against Kelly Loeffler, who was a heinously bad candidate that Mm -hmm. Kemp put in and very, 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 you know, stiff and rigid, not relatable, just, you know, a rich lady. Mm -hmm. And basically, Trump and his people went into Georgia all throughout the runoff period and said, don't vote. Your vote yeah. doesn't matter. It's all rigged. Yeah. And he actively worked to turn to to depress his own voters. So Warnock is able to squeak by mm-hmm. special election. So he's got to face voters. Now, Georgia's a red state. Under normal circumstances, Georgia's a red state. Mm-hmm. We, Georgia has mm-hmm. two Democratic senators and voted for Joe Biden because of the uniqueness of Trump. Mm-hmm. But it is a red state, generally speaking. And, and everything Herschel's done, while it's not good. It's not great. You'd rather he not be paying for abortions <laughs> if you're a Republican. It's not going to matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just won't. No, I think it's a it's a super interesting litmus test of a couple. And then the the this these midterms. I mean, trying to the narrative six months ago was that it was going to be a massive red sweep, and then a few factors start shifting in the other direction. Um, uh, particularly the the Dobbs decision on abortion, and that narrative is blown to smithereens. Maybe that narrative ends up being the correct one, but it doesn't seem to be the one that most people on either side are attaching themselves to right now. Um, another senatorial election that that has some strange dynamics here in Pennsylvania. Another Trump picked uh, media, you know, media celebrity, Doctor Oz, and in this case against a guy who, I mean, I, and you know, while. Forget my personal views um, against a guy, a gentleman named John Fetterman, who has not worn anything other than a hoodie, including for, you know, any number of uh, media appearances in in months, had a stroke, doesn't seem to be able to com- uh, to communicate at an adult level um, and, you know, seems to be hitching his entire campaign to the notion that one Dr. Oz is a rich, out of touch, uh, uh, caviar loving, you know, phony and doesn't live in Pennsylvania, but doesn't really say anything else. How do you see that one playing out? You know, again, this is a weird race where the Republican side, there was a, a candidate that everyone liked. Um, his name was Sean Parnell, mm-hmm. but then he had to drop out of the race because of a nasty divorce situation. And then you end up with Oz against a guy named uh, McCormick. I forget his first name. Mm-hmm. McCormick. Call him McCormick. <laughs> and, you know, he's just uh, he's like a, a Bridgewater guy. Mm-hmm. So you have just like a. Uh, a hedge fund, you know, sell us down the river to China person against a kind of dilettante celebrity mm-hmm. in Oz. And and like with Walker, Trump went with Oz because he always defers to celebrity and he, he dragged him over the finish line. Fetterman is a very compelling candidate. And I and you talk about that hoodie he wears every day. You know, Pennsylvania has a lot of it's it's a it's a rust belt, blue collar state. They have a lot of people who are going to really he has a great look. Best thing about Fetterman is the look. Fetterman looks like a guy who who eats his lunch out of a metal lunchbox every day, and he really looks he looks the part of of someone who is a true blue you know native Pennsylvanian. And 
And Oz is a deeply out of touch, silly TV millionaire who who and, and you know, it's it's been a very, very bad contrast. But on the other hand, Fetterman has had a stroke. It's better not to have a stroke yep. when you're running for public office. Uh, and his speech has 100 percent been impacted. He doesn't do as many media appearances anymore. And when he does, he typically stumbles. He typically garbles some stuff, which, look, strokes are terrible business. And I'm not saying he can't recover. But he's got to have a debate with Oz on October 25th. And he didn't want to have that debate. And they, mm-hmm. they basically goaded him and guilted him into it. And I'm going to I'll tell you, if 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 Fetterman does that debate and it goes poorly and he can't get through it for whatever reason or he's garbling stuff, then I think Oz might take it. Mm-hmm. But if Fetterman can get past the debate without you know a disaster, then I think he'll probably ha- he certainly has the edge. That will be an inter- another interesting litmus test. I mean, personally, that that kind of you know every man blue collar casual cavalier you know, uh, uh, veneer that Fetterman is trying to uh, cultivate. I mean, I, I don't know. It seems like it's something that a lot of people try to cultivate, and, and they think that it'll have more wide appeal. But it doesn't. But maybe in Fetterman's case, it, that contrast between the kind of you know uh, the the pearly gates, uh, you know. Wrong, right side of the tracks, wrong side of the tracks contrast between him and Oz. Maybe in Pennsylvania that, that falls on Fetterman's side here. Should be an interesting one to see. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. And speaking of uh, political races where one side uh, is trying to shy away from a debate, that's also the situation in New York with the gubernatorial race. Am I correct? You are correct. And so you've got Kathy Hochul, who is shown, you know, as I mean, if you looked up neurotic one in the, the dictionary, it would seem it seemed to be a picture of Kathy was inserted in a kind of a, stra- a strange set of circumstances, was not elected. But, you know, obviously, New York is a very blue state. Then you've got a Republican named Lee Zeldin, who, who seems to be able to point to a lot of breakdown um, in public order and issues with crime and seems to be campaigning very aggressively, has requested a uh, any number of debates with Hochul and Hochul has uh, has sidestepped them. Um, how is that race? looking and does lee have any chance or, or is kathy hochel just so insulated by the natural blue advantage in new york that she doesn't really have to campaign when i mean hochel's refusal to do debates and she has agreed to one but her mm-hmm. refusal lee wanted five you know her her, ref, her refusal to really do debates is a reflection of her of her confidence mm-hmm. she believes she's way out in front and that a debate would only hurt her there's no upside and, and the reason Zeldin wants to do lots of debates is because I think it's a recognition that he knows he's an underdog and he needs some real knockout debate moments to try to, you know, to reset the tables a bit. Refusing to debate is actually a sign of strength, I think. Yeah, it, it's a sign of your campaign's confidence. Um, you don't need to dignify, you know, this person. You, you're already coasting. it. Look, this is New York, man. We're as blue as it gets. Um, yeah. you, you know, you you. I'll use my baked potato line. A baked potato as a Democrat could win in in a lot of different races in New York. And mm-hmm. as for governor, we haven't had a Republican governor since George Pataki and uh, won his third election, I believe, in 2002. Well, that's that's not ancient history, though. Not ancient history, but it's it's been a generation. And, yeah. you know, the, it. it Hochul has the advantage, no question. Mm-hmm. The polls consistently show her leading the most favorable polls by about five or six percent, you know, and those are those are generous polls. Others by, you know, more like 15 to 16, 17. If let's let's say Hochul only squeezes this out by five or six points, does that have any impact? Does that show a shifting of the tide? Does that signal to Hochul, hey, maybe you can't screw around so much or does business just continue as usual? We have to. Well, if Hochul, it depends, you know, it depends if Hochul wins by about two, three percent. That likely will mean a lot of state Senate and state assembly races will go Republican Mm -hmm. because it will suggest a large wave of Republicans voted. So they couldn't knock her out. But many of the much of the legislature got a lot redder. And then I don't I don't know. It will depend on what that makeup is. The signature issue in New York is this is this bail reform law. Mm -hmm. In 2019, the legislature passed a law basically saying that a number of different crime, a whole host of different crimes that previously would have required you to make some kind of bail 
to and be detained that. and kept away yeah. from society before you now, your trial. You, yes. Judges are now prevented from from uh, issuing bail to a whole host of crimes and there's no judicial discretion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's and there's a lot of situations where really serious crimes like, you know, guy punches someone in the head, falls on the ground. Now he's in a coma. DA downgrades the charges to like petty assault or something released without bail. And that's yeah. a real case. And the governor actually had to intervene and make yeah. and send the guy to jail af- only after the post did a cover story on it. But we can't mm-hmm. do a cover story on every single case. You yeah. know, and there are a lot of them every day. There seems to be another incident in New York where someone with a, a rap sheet a mile long, including a few entries that are recent, is involved in another violent incident. We have no laws in New York right now. I can't stress that enough to you. You can walk into a CVS and just take shit and it doesn't matter. It's just like up to a thousand dollars. Nothing will happen to you. It, you can you can take a piss in the middle of the street. It's just you can shoot up heroin in the middle of the park and kids right there. Nothing. Not there's no laws anymore. Yeah. And, and I guess my question. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the question is, and it's the one that I'm asking and I'm trying to monitor myself here on the West Coast is, that, listen, historically, everyone believes that there is this pendulum out there and the pendulum swings one way and the pendulum swings the other way. And that when crime, homelessness and public disorder become problems, the, the ultimate case study is 1993. Rudy Giuliani, um, aggressive, you know, tough on crime, New Yorker. Things got so bad. Um, the pot, the the citizenry reacted. Right. It was it was pure chaos under David Dinkins. The voters reacted and. And the pendulum swung and they elected someone who's tough on crime and public or public order. Then you've got these issues with, you know, for the first time after consistently, you know, things consistently becoming safer and, and increase in public order for about 20 years in L.A. and New York. Crime has has popped back up over the last few years. And it's a fascinating litmus test. It's like, OK, uh, uh, do, do the citizens react? Is there going to be or if they do, you know, do they need someone to lead the charge? It seems like in L.A., Rick Caruso is at least attempting to, to lead the charge and saying, OK, anyone who's dissatisfied with the direction things are going in. Um, here's me and the 80 million dollars that I'm going to spend on this campaign. And it'll be a vessel for you to express those frustrations in New York. You know, a little bit different because Eric Adams, while tough on crime, doesn't you know that that's not necessarily the angle that he was coming from. Right. I mean, he was just already a local political, uh, uh, you know, is already involved in local politics and reflects that, you know, somewhat. I'm interested to see what you're perspective is there on the east coast it's sad because what you said is correct we had 20 giuliani and bloomberg fixed it yeah we had decades of of deprivation people were leaving the city cabs wouldn't even drive to the bronx the city was on fire we were bankrupt giuliani fixed it bloomberg kept it going and Mm -hmm. we built a model orderly city and it worked Things worked for a long time and people wanted to live here and the streets were clean and you could ride the subway at night and you don't have to worry about some crazy junkie punching you in the face for whatever. And people don't quite realize how much that was just an accepted part of life in the 80s and early 90s. The key thing is people assume that New York being a safe city is a given. Yeah. Natural yeah. state of things. And it's not. It takes yeah. a tremendous amount of work and effort. It, it, it's not natural. The natural state of things is chaos and madness. And it was like, here, you're, you're play Jenga. It's like Jenga. Yeah. You pull out a brick. Okay. Maybe you get away with that. Another brick, another brick. And so what you've been seeing in Albany and in the city council with every new sort of policy that, you know, defund the police, bail reform, they're just bricks being taken out of the Jenga. And eventually it starts to crumble. And we're, we're in the, we're in a crumbling phase right now. And, we're not it's not as bad as the 80s. It's not as bad as the early 90s. If you want to see how horrible New York was in the early 90s, you know what you should do? You should go watch Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, <laughs> filmed in 1992. And there's an amazing yep. Yep. scene where Macaulay Culkin is walking down Central Park West and he just is confronted by like prostitutes and psychos and madmen. And Joe Pesci has a great line where they're in Central Park and he's like, Yeah, the park. Grown men come in the park and don't even leave a lot. And it's like, it'll go <laughs> it's right over true. you. But it's like, that's what it was like in New York in 1992. <laughs> we're going, we're on the way back to that, unless we do something. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it, the only, it seems like, and this is why I'm just sitting here pulling my freaking hair out because I mean, much like you, I was never historically particularly conservative, but I mean, I, it's got to be a reaction to the way things have been going. And I'm like, wait a second. Okay. If the natural guardrail, the natural corrective that we saw in the early nineties with it, you know, happened with electing a, a Republican mayor in New York, in LA, it didn't require that in LA, the Democrats, even, you know, I always point to this in LA, um, 2012, Los Angeles was the safest city in America with over 2 million residents. You go look at the press around that. You've got Democrat Antonio Villaraigosa holding press conferences with the chief of police, Charlie Beck, celebrating this and talking about how great the cops are. Okay. There there has to be that pendulum swing. People just assume that will happen naturally, but it doesn't seem to be happening now, or at least it might take another cycle of things getting really bad. Um, so to that, to you know, the friend who inquired who uh, the New York, the person on top of the New York issues is, that would be John, and, and he is diving into these as you can see right here. Another issue that popped up in, in uh, New York with you know one of your. Uh, top universities, New York University. I don't know if you saw this in the New York Times the other day, but apparently uh, at NYU, students were failing organic chemistry. Who was to blame? Apparently, uh, students at uh, New York University who were majoring in chemistry or trying to be doctors started a petition to get uh, uh, essentially complaining that the uh, one of the top organic chemistry professors grading system was was too tough they weren't getting good grades so they signed a petition and the university fired him I uh, saw did you this. catch one of the story no, no, I was, did. Oh. and yeah and and this seems to be so indicative of the shift that we're seeing you know and, and the it, these guardrails being removed but no corrective action being taken and understanding yes the the kind of tried and true wisdom of sticks and stones may break my bones but words would never hurt me or the understanding that you know having standards and and the standards that we had in place in the higher education system for decades um would you know would, would at least remain generally in place they would they would shrink they would contract they would expand but now those seem to be completely gone and any concerns expressed by students now take priority and the tail wags the dog. Well, part of this is these students are spending $75,000, a year. And if you're in a situation where professor such and such, and they're all getting C's and D's or whatever, and, and, they're, and they're revolting, there's a bottom line question, which by the way, this is terrible. And I, I don't like this, but I'm offering some kind of explanation for why the university might be so indulgent. But also, I think it's part of a broad based pattern where we're just we're dumbing down stuff. You know, a lot of people don't know I used to be a teacher in China mm-hmm. and there's like no universe ever where Chinese students would start a petition to complain about the school work being too hard. They would just sit down and do it and they figure it out. Yeah, but that and, could also I, be said to be true of American students up until pretty recently because it's not in New York. You know, NYU didn't get expensive last week. NYU has been ex- expensive for quite some time. So that, I, I, you know, I don't know if I buy that argument. It's, it's popping up in a lot of questions about higher education that, oh, the reason that these institutions are capitulating to students or the youth complaining about certain aspects of traditional aspects of higher education is because everyone's trying to compete for students. Well, you know, something if there, if there were cultural guardrails and expectations that this ridiculous thing, this ridiculous complaint from these kids would be treated as ridiculous. No one would no one would have the gumption to go make the complaint that these kids would not have that. They would know that the consequences of the, you know, being made to look ridiculous and starting this petition to get a professor fired in organic chemistry yeah, for fuck's sake. Stuff. OK, I remember. Organic. Yeah, like it, it's the, the whole idea. Like these these people aren't you know, they're, they're not going to be writers for BuzzFeed. They're trying to be doctors here. And apparently the standards are too stringent in training to be a doctor. But those cult- those cultural norms are gone. I now. think to what you said about culture, that NYU is also probably susceptible to a lot of the same pressures that large companies are facing, too, which is you have a young activist class of employees or, or people in the institution who are very loud on social media. And it has just become a thing where if they band together and they all tweet together. Suddenly the New York Times is writing about it. Suddenly press is getting involved. And you see institutions increasingly capitulate to often their most junior, loudest staffers. And, and it's at the mm-hmm. expense of shareholders. It's at the expense of bottom line. It's it's at the expense of, of it, it, common sense in some cases. And, and so NYU is not unique in this. Um, you see... I mean, I, 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 I work in media institutions. So you see you've seen places like The New York Times, which used to be like my must read. I read The New York Times every day in college. It's great. It was a great newspaper back sure. then. 
Um, and yet gradually they hired into their ranks a lot of activist class journalists and, you know, well beyond what, you know, your your, your 1997 Fox News watcher would have called the liberal media. People, you know, well yep. beyond that. Yep. Because I, you know, oh, I yeah. spend too much time on Twitter and I see these guys and all of a sudden it's like, oh, they hired that person. OK, that's crazy. Oh, they hired that person. OK, <laughs> I'm like now that suddenly I'm like Homer in the bushes. I'm like, right. You know? Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. and all of a sudden you start to see some of these articles and it's like, oh, OK. And it's it's it is a form of capture from the loudest, you know, youngest voice that's joined up and. You don't see the adults in the room sort of fulfilling the job as the adults in the room that why we have that expression. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I think they're also afraid there. Everyone wants to get younger yeah. audiences too. everyone wants to be cool and young and get the next generation. And so when some millennial mm-hmm. says, OK, boomer, you know, you kind of a lot of these, you know, these suits and these C-suite types just shrivel up and die because they yeah. don't. They're well, it's like, I'm still cool, you know. <laughs> Yeah. No. And that that seems to explain the motives here. Right. But then in terms of thinking, how does this correct itself? Because the NY, the New York Times article on this NYU situation was not a, a, a laudatory. The, the even the New York Times was framing this story as a bad thing. Like, good Lord, how is NYU listening to these whiny kids? And I mean, you look at, you know, even a lot of liberal commentators are like, all right, come on, guys. This is just a, a, a an essentially incineration of all standards. So I guess maybe my question is, how are the institutions continuing? so tone deaf, right? How do they not understand that, wait a second, even in these situations where we're trying to placate these loud scolds, um, that it's probably not going to, it's probably going to result in worse PR for them than good PR for them. Like why, why do they not get it? What's the blind spot? It's tough. I mean, I, 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 I would go back to there's competition for students and you, you, a, a place like NYU is very, very susceptible to boatloads of parents calling in and saying, I'm spending all this money not for my child to get a C. My child needs to, you know, go on to become a doctor of organic chemistry or whatever the goal is. And I I went to NYU. NYU is susceptible to this pressure. But all you know. And I'll yeah. say that look, look what look what happened at Oberlin. I'll, you know, they there was the case where the students accused like the local bakery of being racist yeah. and the school completely went into the narrative hook, line and sinker. And they had to give a multi-million dollar, believe an eight figure yeah. settlement. And just for all, all the listeners who aren't familiar with that story, you know, uh, around the Black Lives Matter protests, Oberlin College, a very liberal, liberal arts uh, college in Ohio. Um, apparently, were they shoplifting? They were they, were sho- the kids, it was petty, it was of, petty shoplifting yeah. and they got busted. Yeah. And the kids claim that it wasn't they weren't shoplifting, that they, the uh, the elderly family that ran the bakery and had run it for generations was, in fact, racist. Oberlin came out as this predictable, you know, kind of hostage statements about how the safety of the students and uh, is paramount and we won't tolerate this racism from local businesses, blah, blah, blah. But it was very much, you know, in no uncertain terms, accusing the bakery and the the elderly fam, the elderly couple that ran it of racism. And they sued Oberlin for defamation. They want a pretty significant settlement. I think it was upwards of thirty million dollars. And it's it just I guess that that's. And obviously something we will not answer in this conversation, but a question for people to consider is with these incidents where these, you know, trying to uh, capitulate to the woke uh, uh, continues to have harmful negative consequences. Um, it doesn't seem to be spurring any corrective action other than here or there with Netflix telling their employees, hey, guys, some you, you might have to accept that we're going to have Dave Chappelle and some other brash comedians do specials here. And if you don't like that, don't work here. I mean, it seems like only very selectively do you see people kind of you know does do these con uh consequences set them straight yeah i think you know that's ultimately the, the ultimate answer which is when 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 going down the woke rabbit hole is starting to impact your bottom line and costing mm-hmm. you millions of dollars yeah. then you reassess and i think that is ultimately what people will respond to and ultimately how you stop a lot of these excesses, which is why we have the legal system. You know, it's, sure. it's a corrective on many things. And and um, I was not unhappy to see the Oberlin rule. <laughs> um, yeah. I think I think like those people were wronged and we have the legal system to protect people like that. So, yeah, that's, that's and, and- how you ultimately put a stop to a lot of the excesses. 
Yeah, very much so. And I guess we're at in, in this era where it's becoming so uh, it, people can, can so cavalierly lob accusations of racism um, or other, you know, blights on a person's character or call them Nazis. It's like the court system hasn't quite determined to what extent that specific allegation is or is not defamatory. And as, as we go through more of these cases, maybe we'll become more solidified that, hey, if you want to make that accusation against someone, you better have the goods or else you could be subject to defamation. So um, maybe you know maybe the court the court system is where uh, where the corrective action comes from possibly the court system is the the medicine is the solve for all of this but it certainly won't be a simple solution won't be a quick solution so a lot of these issues you know Elon's impact on Twitter the 2020 uh, uh the 2022 elections and how things play out in America's big cities Los Angeles and New York and are we going to see an analog to the reversal in the early 90s uh in response to increases in crime things that we'll all be monitoring and uh you know on the east coast mirroring what I'm doing here on the west coast John Levine of the New York Post. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a lot of fun being here, Matt. And uh, absolutely, we'll no doubt. Just let everybody know where they can find you. Um, at the New York Post, but you can find <laughs> me on Twitter at Levine Jonathan. And you know that's that's the primary place where you could you could reach me. I take all my DMs are open, so message me. I take I take tips. I take emails. I take text messages. I take sex tapes. Whatever you got for me, I'll take. Um, you know, I, I I love people. So if I don't know you, you're just a friend I haven't met. So come talk to me. Just reach out if you got a juicy sex tape. All the better. And uh, for everyone, uh, thanks so much. This is the prevailing narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky.